the profit margin on a bulb that sells for a quarter is negligible. And in fact, throughout the 1990s, the profit margin on the traditional bulb was typically falling. Why was there almost no profit margin, even though the competition wasn't that great? It's because of the threat of competition. Because if GE jacked up its price, Phillips would undercut them. If all three of them tried to jack up their price, somebody else would come in. Tungsten, a little bit of glass, a little bit of aluminum. It wasn't that expensive. So the beauty of capitalism wasn't that it provided big profits. It's that it made big profits very difficult. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. On April 14th, 2015, the Acton Institute and the Mackinac Center for Public Policy jointly hosted Timothy Carney for a lecture on the topic, Is Big Business a Danger to Economic Liberty? Timothy P. Carney is the senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and the author of three books, Obamanomics, The Big Ripoff, which won the Templeton Enterprise Award from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and the 2006 Lysander Spooner Award for the best book on liberty, and Alienated America. Tim was a 2012 Pulliam Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Hillsdale College, and he sits on the board of visitors for the Institute for Political Journalism. A protege of the late columnist Robert Novak, Tim was senior reporter at the Evans Novak Political Report and became editor when Novak retired in 2008. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, and many other publications. Tim is a native of Greenwich Village and an alumnus of St. John's College in Annapolis. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you. Thank you to uh, Acton Institute for hosting, the Mackinac Center for inviting me out here, and to all of you for coming. I'm coming from the, the D.C. area, and I'm uh, leaving, leaving behind uh, my wife and my five kids. So leaving behind five kids, I really am grateful for the Mackinac. No, <laughs> leaving behind my five kids, I ask all of your prayers for my wife, who's home with all of them. The... <coughs> What I'm as at the Washington Examiner, I'm a columnist and I have my opinions and my viewpoint. And I want to, in full disclosure, lay it all out for all of you. I'm a believer in free enterprise, in limited government. I think that that maximizes the wealth of society. I think that that is the moral way to approach business. That when two adults want to, one wants to sell something, one wants to buy something, we shouldn't get in the way. And I think that it not just helps the wealth of society, but it helps the wealth of the least off, and it's the fairest situation. But I also do reporting, and as I do reporting on these situations, I find that increasingly the enemies of free enterprise is not the left. It's not Ralph Nader. It's not Bernie Sanders. It's not, you know, the socialists. It's actually the big business lobby. And in fact, I argue that the biggest threat to free enterprise and economic liberty today is the big business lobby. Um, This is one of my first times doing a slideshow, so bear with me if I press it in the wrong direction here. 
Milton Friedman, that's who that guy is. The two greatest enemies of free enterprise in the United States have been, on my one hand, my fellow intellectuals, and on the other hand, the business corporations of this country. And what Friedman said was, the intellectuals, well, they believe in free markets only for themselves, freedom only for themselves, and they want restrictions on everybody else. Well, the corporations, the lobbyists, often want free enterprise in general, but restrictions in their own industry. That is, subsidies, handouts, protections that protect them from regulation, I mean, from competition. Regulation often serves the role of protecting the big guys from competition. And this isn't just some weird, quirky aspect of what happens in Washington as I, as I follow lobbying. It is, in fact, the dominant uh, theme in what happens in Washington. So big business is, in fact, the greatest threat to free enterprise for three reasons. Number one, they actually win. So when there's some debate and you have you know, the, the tree-hugging hippies against some, you know, the, the ability to, uh, against free enterprise, the hippies don't usually win unless they have a big business on their side. When you have labor unions, well, they sometimes win, but increasingly, even in Michigan, they sometimes lose unless they have big business on their side. Number two, when big business supports bigger government, they fool the middle. And by this, I mean sort of the mainstream media and the people who believe the mainstream media. They say, oh, wait a second. In this case, you have both uh, a big business, you have both General Electric and the environmentalists in favor of restrictions on greenhouse gases. That must mean there's consensus without examining Maybe General Electric is profiting off of these regulations in ways that hurt the rest of the economy. But most importantly, I think they fool our side. And by our side, I mean the people who believe in free enterprise. The people who believe in free enterprise often, almost every time that they go for big government, they go for regulations and handouts and bailouts and subsidies, it's because big business asks them to. So the example I want to talk about to start is the light bulb law. Um, and I actually smuggled out of my hotel room a prop. Um, that's an incandescent bulb. This is a bulb they have in my hotel room. Um, this is a compact fluorescent bulb. This is in my hotel room not because Holiday Inn wanted to save energy, not because this is a great advance over Thomas Edison's bulb being smashed there, but because the government forced them to. And Understanding the story of this. This wasn't Greenpeace. This wasn't Natural Resources Defense Council. This wasn't the tree huggers who took away that and smashed it and forced this on us. It only happened because the big business lobby. In the 1990s, and this is a great story about the beauty of capitalism, 1990s, General Electric controlled about half of the US light bulb market. The other 40% was controlled by Philips and Sylvania. This was market domination. There was very little competition with those three. And one company controlled half of it. But if you, if you listen to sort of the, the leftist history of economics, this should mean, oh, well, these guys are going to jack up prices. We're going to be paying through the nose. They're going to be ripping us all off. But that's not at all what happened. 
Um, this is from the, the 90s and the 2000s. And I say this is a beauty of capitalism. Lightball makers, according to the USA Today, had razor-thin profit margins. A New York Times story talked about the downside of selling a ubiquitous commodity, such as a light bulb, the profit margin on a bulb that sells for a quarter is negligible. And in fact, throughout the 1990s, the profit margin on the traditional bulb was typically falling. Why was there almost no profit margin, even though the competition wasn't that great? It's because of the threat of competition. Because if GE jacked up its price, Phillips would undercut them. If all three of them tried to jack up their price, somebody else would come in. Tungsten, a little bit of glass, a little bit of aluminum. It wasn't that expensive. So the beauty of capitalism wasn't that it provided big profits. It's that it made big profits very difficult. And that's beautiful for us because we're the consumers. It's beautiful for businesses that need to buy a bunch of light bulbs in order to sell what they want to sell. It's beautiful for the Acton Institute that needs to buy a bunch of light bulbs to illuminate their uh, illuminating speakers. But it's, <laughs> it's not beautiful if you're somebody who wants to make a bigger profit without innovating. And that was a problem. So they started making these fancier bulbs. This is a 1992 fluorescent light bulb. And this was actually fairly advanced over just those tubes that we all had in, you know, in middle school and high school. Um, and there was a great New York Times story about this, or AP story, and it explained, consumers need to be educated that the new bulb lines help reduce energy consumption. The context of that is obvious. Consumers didn't want to buy these bulbs. They didn't want to buy, if you look closely, I don't know if you can see the price tag on that, it was a $21 bulb in 1991 compared to a 25 cent bulb. And well, the problem was that we as the consumers weren't just, just weren't smart enough, just weren't smart enough to realize how great these light bulbs were. And so the light bulb companies tried to join in sort of public education. Well, in the long run, you save more and the bulb lasts longer and all this stuff. Again, we didn't want to buy it and we didn't have to. And that was the beauty of capitalism. But the beauty for us as the consumers was a pain for the manufacturers because they wanted a profit market margin that was bigger than negligible. But free market and open competition made that harder. So New York Times this decade wrote, no amount of subsidy or green branding has managed to woo consumers from Thomas Edison's light bulb. So some years ago, Phillips formed a coalition with environmental groups, including Natural Resources Defense Council, to push for higher standards. And higher standards here means government mandates. It means they wanted to outlaw light bulbs that did not meet their efficiency standards. And eventually General Electric, and eventually uh, you had Sylvania join in with Philips. So all the light bulb industry, the big three makers, were lobbying to outlaw the traditional bulb because on the fancier bulbs they could make a greater margin. And so, they started by having a federal law that the government agencies would put these high efficiency bulbs in. This law kind of almost makes sense, right? Government spends a lot of money on, on electricity, so you have more efficient bulbs, maybe saves money in the long run. It was, it was only stupid in the way that most government uh, programs are stupid in that it wasn't f have enough foresight. In other words, they didn't realize that putting all these bulbs in in 2007 was going to mean that they threw out a bunch of old bulbs and that they could have gotten much more efficient bulbs if they had waited till 2012 or 2014. But then they followed up with another law that got stuck in the 2007 energy bill that meant that you and I, none of us, could buy the traditional incandescent. We had to buy the bulbs 
that met this standard. Now, this wasn't some bill that, this wasn't some provision that Democrats forced down the throat of President George W. Bush. There was two chief sponsors. One was a Democrat, the other was Republican Fred Upton of, of Michigan. And when Fred Upton uh, was defending this bill, he said, this common sense bipartisan approach partners with American industry to save energy as well as help foster the creation of new domestic manufacturing jobs. When he was pressed on it in his campaign to become Commerce Committee chairman a few years later, he said, okay, it was a mistake. But why did you make the mistake, Congressman? Well, it was GE and Sylvania and Phillips. That's basically what he owned up to. Republicans and I, I put him up there because he was a sponsor, but m most Republicans voted for the bill. Republicans supported a big government mandate because their first reaction was, well, if this is bad, business will oppose it. And then when the businesses that were primarily affected by it didn't oppose it, Republicans went along with it. Um, that's not my slide, that's Acton <laughs> Institute. So, um, so those, that's, that's my first story is the, uh, is the story of the light bulb. Republi the way that big government wins is by getting big business to fool our side. And then if you were to read the, uh, the media accounts at the time, you see that it was also fooling, uh, when Republicans got smart to the fact that this was bad policy and they started trying to repeal it, they said, this is how crazy and extreme the Tea Partiers are, that they're opposing even the light bulb industry on regulations of light bulbs. Um, I said the, the two main reasons were they fool us and they fool the media. I mean, they, uh, they win and they fool the media. Another for those two points were Nike in a few years back endorsed President Obama's EPA rules. And the Democrats in 2009, their emissions rules on regulating energy industry to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the way the New York Times covered it, Nike's support of these big government rules. This declaration of support for the EPA and the president is a rebuke to those in Congress who, like then minority leader Mitch McConnell, by the way, it's great that he's no longer minority leader, then minority leader Mitch McConnell have been echoing the fossil fuels industry, industry's claim that regulating CO2 from power plants will simply demolish America's economy. So in other words, you have a company that says, we support this regulation, then you have people who say, this regulation will hurt the economy. And then the media says, it clearly won't hurt the economy because there's some business supporting it. Guess what? Nike makes 98% of its stuff in another country that's not affected by the rules that President Obama puts into place. Malaysia, China, Nigeria, these countries aren't affected by Obama's regulations. They're, they, they're, it's not even that they're not even worrying about greenhouse gas emissions. They're not worrying about outright actual pollution and whatever they're dumping in the river. So of course Nike doesn't mind these rules. Um, and it's, uh, the company touted in 2008, it's 80% reduction in emissions from 1998. Almost all of that came from the fact that, do you guys remember Nike Airs? They used to put this gas in there that was called sulfur hexafluoride, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas. They replaced it with uh, nitrogen. And that was 80% of their their reduction in greenhouse gases. Um, the rest of it was that in the US, they, like the warehouses and the trucks that they bought were slightly more fuel efficient, which you would expect. 
Um, but in its manufacturing and its logistics, Nike's emissions jumped 62% worldwide. And again, these were in foreign countries. But Nike has smaller competitors, and this is where we start to get at the point, the real damage, not just to consumer choice with the light bulbs, but to competition. Nike has smaller competitors like New Balance that make their shoes up in New England. They're affected by the greenhouse gas rules, so Nike gets a good press for supporting uh, these greenhouse gas rules, and they get to help crush their competitors with new regulations. Um, there's a cigar story I like to tell. Um, there's a newspaper that said the Cigar Association of America, quote, which represents manufacturers, is planning to argue in Oregon, as it has been contending in other state capitals, that the reputation of its own products, cigars, is being sullied by the marketing of loose wrappers to pot smokers under the guise of being part of the cigar culture. And they said, oh, well, we don't want to be connected with drugs. Of course, you sell a loose cigar wrapper to somebody who then makes their own cigars, it takes away from the manufacturing of uh, these guys. So they're supporting regulations that are making it easier for people to go to alternative businesses. You, see, you saw it here in Grand Rapids where the restaurants were opposing food trucks for a while. You see it in lots of cities where taxis are opposing the introduction of Uber. And you saw it with Obamacare. Right now, in the, on the state-by-state -state level, you see the hospitals, you see the drug companies, you see the insurers lobbying for more government. Why? Because they want the subsidies. And they want regulations that protect them from competition. And so you have Philip Morris, the number one cigarette company in the country. They supported Obama's 2009 bill to regulate cigarettes. Why? One, adding to the cost of doing business keeps out smaller competitors. And regulation always adds to the cost of doing business. Two, basically outlawing cigarette advertising freezes uh, Philip Morrison as the number one company that sells half of the cigarettes in the, in the country. And then three, and this is where you really get into the way Washington works. I went and I looked at the regulatory filing. So remember, Congress passes a law, and then the agencies actually implement it. You can't stop. The bill doesn't really become a law when the president signs it. It gets implemented. And in bills like Obamacare, it gets completely rewritten by the executive office, but it gets implemented by the agencies. And so I looked at who's filing what comments with the Food and Drug Administration as they're putting the smoking regulation law into place. I found this one farmer, I think he was in North Carolina, Smoking Joe's was the name, and he said, you guys are talking about outlawing free samples. Do you understand free samples of cigarettes are not us going up and being like, hey, little Jimmy, you want to smoke? Free samples are us going to you know, a corner store or gas station and saying, here's a pack, I forget what they were, they were something like homegrown organic cigarettes. Now, I don't smoke, I'm not into organic so much, so it's not my cup of tea, but again, I believe in freedom, so if you want your homegrown organic cigarettes, you should be able to get them. And you go to the corner store and, and you're smoking Joe and you say, hey, try these, and the, the guy likes it and he sells it. So Smoking Joe says, if you outlaw these free samples, we can't really distribute our product. Guess who that doesn't matter to? It doesn't matter to Philip Morris and Marlboro. And I looked at their regulatory filings, and they were sort of nibbling around the edges and this and that, and the content of their filings wasn't that interested. And then I got down to the bottom, and I saw the signature. The lawyer for Philip Morris filing these uh, regulatory filings was a former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration. And then you realize that when you make, when you put something in the arena of government, it becomes a home game for big business and an away game for the small guy. 
and the consumer ends up losing out. Now, I could tell you guys a million stories here. I want, I want you all to come up with your counter arguments and your questions and that stuff and throw them at me um, first. But uh, I think it's also a problem when it comes to bailouts. And this is bailouts of Wall Street. This is bailouts of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is the Obamacare bailouts of the insurance companies. But it's also bailouts of Chrysler and General Motors. I think it's a problem, all of this stuff. Because if you end up taking the side that's pro-business and not the side that's pro-free market, what you're doing is you are undermining. And this should have been my fourth reason in my slide up there about the reasons that big business is the biggest threat to free enterprise. If you take the pro-business side against the pro-free enterprise, if you take the pro-bailout side, you are undermining the moral justification of free enterprise. Because why do we like free enterprise? It's not so that rich people can get rich. I love that rich people get rich. This town is a great example of what happens with a successful company like Amway. They make lots of money. It's great. But that's not why we like free enterprise. We like it because it's hard for them to get rich. Because the profit margin on a light bulb goes down to almost zero so that we can buy more light bulbs. And so that the profit margin on shoes goes down to near zero so we can buy more shoes. Now for me, the shoes being sneakers for kids being really cheap, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, again, I've got five kids. That's at least 10 sneakers at any given time. I realize you have to multiply by two to get the appropriate number of sneakers. Um, but it's also, I mean, for me, it's a difference between how much money I can put in my IRA or more, my 401k. For a poor family, it's a difference between whether their kids have shoes or not. That's the reason for free enterprise. And again, it's small profit margins. That's the beauty there. It's not the big guys getting rich. That's happens. That's a side effect. That's not why I love it. But if what you love is businesses getting protection from competition, or businesses that would fail being propped up, well, that's a pro-business argument that's not a pro-free enterprise argument, and you take away the moral argument. You take away the fact that people ought to be rewarded. In free enterprise, profit is hinged to the providing something of value. In a crony economy, Profit is hinged to having proximity to a politician, to hiring the right lobbyist who's probably a former politician. And so free enterprise isn't always the best thing for a company's bottom line in the short run, but it's always the best thing for society's bottom line. And I would argue, and if you guys want to talk about it in the questions, I will, that in the long run, a business always does better by swearing off special favors from government and going with free enterprise. Maybe in the short run, they'll give up something, like an eminent domain taking or a handout or something like that. Or if you're a failed company, then yeah, you probably want to bail out. But the rest of the economy in the long run, they, they all benefit from free enterprise. And so if that's what you stand for, you have to look out, not for the people who say, oh, well, socialism and make it all and that. They never win. And they don't fool our side. What fools our side is a big business guys coming and saying, we believe in free enterprise, but in this case, there's an exception. That's the real danger. That's the danger in America today. And if you believe in free enterprise and you want there to be a moral underpinning, that's what you have to battle against. So again, thank all of you for coming, and I'm happy to take your questions, arguments, debates. Thank you, thank you Tim. <clears throat> so we do have good stump Tim time. That's what this is called. Don't be easy on them, okay? Don't be easy. Isn't the underlying problem here not what businesses are doing, but the regulatory system 
Uh, in other words, they're just participating uh, in yeah. following the rules that, that, that are established for them. So, yes, that, that's half true, I would say. Um, the ultimate blame lies with the policymakers because we elect them and they're supposed to serve our interests. And if they end up serving the interests of the special interests or just making government bigger because they like bigger government, that's where the ultimate blame lies. But then if we're sort of getting in a question of where can we assign blame? And I like assigning blame. I'm kind of a moralist. I, I, I like doing that. That's my job. I get paid to do that. I think we can assign blame to businesses, not businesses that lobby for their own good necessarily, and not necessarily businesses that end up profiting off of big government. So I wrote a story in, in Reason Magazine recently where I lay out three cases. The first is a guy who's a sniper. And he seems like he has the best job in the world, where his, his full-time job is being a naturalist, and I forget exactly what it is, running state parks, kind of cool natural stuff. His part-time job is running a company that shoots deer with sniper rifles. And what they do is they go to towns um, that are overrun by deer, and they just thin a herd. So he hires a bunch of other former military guys. And Princeton, New Jersey was the, uh, one of the examples where they had anti-hunting laws. And so you'd be driving your kids to school and you'd probably hit a deer. You get in a car accident, your kid's late for school, there's a dead deer on your hood, it's no fun. So finally Princeton realizes we need to get rid of this deer and 20 years of anti-hunting laws makes this problem. So he goes down there with his buddies and they do all this stuff that would be very unsporting for an actual hunter to do, like at night sights and throw down corn and just... You know, 200 deer dead in a night. And he says, I love my job. The biggest threat to my job is if a bunch of uh, governments adopted sane policies about hunting, then there wouldn't be work for me. So is he wrong to profit from bad government policy? Not at all. Government creates a problem and he addresses it. If government forces oil companies to buy ethanol, which it does, and somebody else produces ethanol, well... I don't, I don't see a problem with that. So there the problem doesn't lie with business. On the other hand, I tell the story of this uh, businessman in San Francisco who ended up like hiring Nancy Pelosi's brother and giving an arena football team to Nancy Pelosi's husband, giving all this money to Nancy Pelosi and the congressional Democrats. And uh, what he was trying to do, he finally got this one hearing for a bill to deregulate initial public offerings. So when a company sells their stock for the first time, currently they have to jump through all these hoops and it's really expensive. And he had the system where people could do it online. And he just wanted to say, you know, there shouldn't be as many hoops to jump through. And he was absolutely right. But to get the hearing, he had to do all this unsavory stuff. Was he wrong to do that? No, I probably wouldn't. I probably would have stopped short of the arena football thing for Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> husband. But you want to sell something and government's in the way, it's your right, and I would actually say it's your duty to lobby for it. The third story I tell, though, is the life insurance companies. And they sell a lot of estate planning things, uh, products, where you're going to die, you're going to have a lot of money, you want to leave money to your kids, and you have to spend a lot of money on lawyers who do all this goofy stuff to leave money to your kids because there's a death tax hanging out there. And guess what? The life insurance industry lobbies for the death tax because that drives business their way. Are you gonna defend that because that increases their profit? No. So the line I draw is, it's fine to profit from big government. It's fine to lobby government for what will make your profit. But if you're lobbying government for bigger government that takes away other people's economic liberty for your own profit, 
Nobody who believes in free enterprise should stand up for that. Milton Friedman had an article in the headline, which he didn't write, was the responsibility of a corporation is to maximize profits. But in that article, he said, within the bounds of free and open competition. And so I do think that corporations that lobby for bigger government are not just sort of playing with the rules, they're trying to write the rules in their own favor. If you're playing within the rules, well, you know, that's, that might be your own problem. I deduct my mortgage interests. I don't think that should exist. I don't think I'm a crony capitalist, but if, you know, if one of you wants to write an article calling me one, I, I fully support your right to do it. But yeah, it comes down to lobbying for more government. That's where I draw the line. In Michigan, we had uh, controversies, it was referred to earlier, about the government bailout for General Motors. And uh, there were many people who had feelings about uh, smaller government and everything, but they said, well, it's General Motors, it's too big to fail. Look at all the devastation that would happen. The question would be, how would you have addressed that? Yeah. So, and this was in the context, and I remember this very clearly, this was in the context of the banks were just bailed out. And um, in the bank bailout, what I argued for was, at the time, I probably argued just against everything the government was proposing, the politicians. But ultimately, what I came to argue for with the banks was, if this is going to be a catastrophe and there needs to be a government intervention, it should be aimed at just preventing a fire sale of assets that are valuable, but there's no buyer for them now. And in that case, it was mortgage-backed securities, some of which were garbage, but some of which were not, a lot of other insurance policies, et cetera. But that it ought to, to prevent moral hazard, to prevent future people from banking on bailouts, it ought to end up winding down the failed institutions. So how would that have worked? Goldman Sachs probably would have survived. JP Morgan would have survived. Citigroup, Bank of America probably would have failed. Um, and that's the way I would have looked at it. And the initial discussion of uh, the Detroit bailout kind of looked like that, that we're just going to prevent this fire sale. I mean, in Toledo, Ohio, there was a transmission factory that was just world-renowned at making great transmissions. And the free market argument is, and they were making them for GM. If GM fails, somebody else will buy up that factory. Now, if it's in the midst of a financial crisis where all the banks are folding and there's nobody who has the capital to buy up that factory and the government's going to step in and prevent a fire sale of that transmission factory, that seems like a legitimate government intervention possibly to me. But to say GM and Chrysler must continue to exist, just as saying, you know, uh, Citibank and Bank of America must, consider, must continue to exist, that's where I think the problem is. That's where it creates a moral hazard. It takes away the profit loss, the risk reward stuff of it. So a, a winding down, what would have happened to Chrysler and GM if they had sort of wound down their assets and allowed for a more orderly sale of them? You know, a lot of the suppliers would have kept their jobs for other automakers, for Ford, who wasn't doing as bad. Um, and some of the suppliers, maybe some more of the suppliers would have lost their jobs, but I don't know. That if government's going to intervene in that situation, I use the word protectionism. Some people use it just to mean trade, like protect us from stuff. I use the word protectionism to say, there's a current business model, and a lot of politicians want to keep that in place. But no, 
That's not what the free market is about. It's about constantly changing. If we kept the current business model in place, we'd all be driving Model Ts. There wouldn't have been a Chrysler, okay? Um, so that, that's the way I view it, that any government intervention in that case should have been aimed at uh, preventing a fire sale of assets rather than saving the companies. This was a timely question. Who do you think is fighting simplification of the federal income tax laws? It's fighting against the simplification. Um, so if, if you are thinking about fed, uh, tax simplification and you're thinking, oh, well, what side is General Electric on or what side is this other? You're actually asking the wrong question. Because there's no such thing as what side General Electric or some other company is on. Because corporations, despite what Mitt Romney once said, are not, in fact, people. Um, they're made up of millions of people, thousands of people at least. And the lobbyists want complexity. <laughs> and that's a big part of the problem in all of Washington. Sometimes some of the stuff I was talking about tonight, you know, will the big businesses profit from it? A lot of times the CEOs don't like that, especially if they're real owners and they're entrepreneurs. But the lobbyists, they thrive off of complexity and uncertainty. And so tax simplification, everybody who ever used to serve on the, the committees that write the tax law in the Senate, it's called the Senate Finance Committee. In the House, it's a House Ways and Means Committee. Every former staffer for those two committees and half of the former members for those committees are now lobbyists. And they're not necessarily working at a company, but they're working at a firm that contracts with companies. So those are the, those are the real uh, opponents of it. But if you look more specifically, um, Dave Camp's tax reform that he pushed out a couple years ago, the Michigan congressman who was, who was chairman of the Ways and Means, when he was looking for special carve-outs and special favors that, uh, that you get rid of them and then you can reduce the rate. That's what tax reform is, right? You get rid of loopholes and you reduce the rate for everybody. That m maximizes economic prosperity. When he was looking for them, disproportionately, he found them in the housing sector, actually. Home interest mortgage deduction, um, lots of other developments, uh, lots of other developing uh, uh, developers, subsidies, um, lots of things for hedge funds. Those were the guys who were sort of gaming the system most. But a, a last comment on tax simplification. Uh, New York Times had a story in 2011, or about two, General Electric in 2011 paying near zero corporate federal income tax. And we were all supposed to be outraged that they didn't pay more corporate uh, federal income tax. I think every corporation should pay zero federal corporate income tax. And frankly, I think every person should minimize their tax bill within the bounds of the law. Um, tomorrow's tax day. Hopefully you've already done your taxes. If not, pay as little as you legally can. That's what I think is, is your moral obligation. So otherwise, you're sending the money off to you know, Barack Obama to spend how he wants. The crime is not that GE paid very little corporate income tax. It's that they had a team of more than 900 people to minimize their tax. And that meant that they thought it was really worth their investment to play tax games. And the smaller problem was they said, oh, well, if we count this and we do all these accounting games, it lowers our taxes. That's just a little bit of a waste of resources. The bigger problem was when those tax guys got on the phone to the actual business guys and they said, by the way, if you run your manufacturing business slightly different, Maybe you make a little less profit, but you pay a lot less taxes. Do that. Or if you move this from, Ireland, from Hungary to Ireland, or you move this um, from May to June, you lower your taxes. 
Those things are the real costs of the tax complexity um, in that they make businesses do less efficient things. So a company like GE would benefit from tax reform, but they also know that they're the guys who can game the complexity of the system. But if you're looking for somebody to blame, which again, I love doing, um, look at the lawyers, the lobbyists, the revolving door types. Now, can you comment on the, on the business roundtable that I think is run by John Engler and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, their relationship with uh, the Congress people and mm -hmm. the staffers and the responsibility of Congress people to represent the people as a whole rather than the corporation. Yeah, so the question is on uh, the business roundtable in the Chamber of Commerce, these business lobbies. Um, Chamber of Commerce is very good. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is very good half the time, and that's when they're talking about taxes and regulations. And they are laying some of the groundwork for uh, tax reform, and they're very good. Um, but when it comes to subsidies, they're generally in favor of more business subsidies. And the business roundtable has sort of gone back and forth. It's a group of, of, that's made up of the actual CEOs of the companies. Um, and they've, uh, they've gone back and forth on how free market or how pro-corporate welfare they've been. And they have traditionally had a disproportionate amount of pull within the Republican Party. In part because Republicans, again, got confused. They thought that they were supposed to be pro-business and that that meant the same as being pro-free enterprise. Um, but I think the 2010 sort of Tea Party revolution changed a lot of that. And yeah, the Chamber of Commerce lost races to conservatives. The guys that they backed in Kentucky, they backed Trey Grayson, but Rand Paul run the, won the Senate race. In Florida, they backed Charlie Crist, but Marco Rubio won the Senate race. Uh, in 2012, in Texas, they backed uh, David Dewhurst, but Ted Cruz won the Senate race. In Pennsylvania, the business lobby backed Arlen Specter, and he had to switch parties because Pat Toomey pulled ahead of him in the primaries. And then you had the local Chamber of Commerce come after Justin Amash um, after his first term. A lot of times, the business lobby goes after the guys who are a little too free market for them. And the Republicans now see that they can't be just the sort of political wing of the Chamber of Commerce. And I think it's really beneficial. And you see guys like Mitch McConnell and John Boehner realizing that, that they're going to side with the Chamber when the Chamber's right, and that when the Chamber's wrong, they're going to differentiate themselves from that. And I really do think the 2010 Tea Party revolution had a very positive effect on teaching Republicans um, that they shouldn't be answering to the Chamber, but in fact steering business. Because ultimately, that's what I think we need to do, convince businesses we are with you on taxes being lower, on regulations being lower, but if you're going for handouts or you're going for protective regulations, we're against you. So you may as well join our side because the left is never really ultimately going to be on your side. Sure. I, I have two questions. One is uh, to challenge your comment about the, uh, about the new curly Q fluorescent bulbs mm -hmm. and GE and Phillips and involvement in that. I don't doubt that, and maybe I'm just dead wrong about this, but my understanding is those bulbs, today's fluorescent bulbs, aren't made by GE or Philips. They're, they're made somewhere in China. And, am I wrong about that? They're made by GE in China. Are they? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good marketing, isn't it? All right, very good. But the, the other more philosophical question I, I wanted to ask is, you. You talk about how business shouldn't be trying to maximize their profits by 
orchestrating change in the regulatory or legal environment. And yet, at the end of the day, they have a fiduciary duty to their mm -hmm. corporations to maximize those profits, and to do otherwise is a violation of that duty. So it's one thing to say that it's unfortunate that they do that. It's another thing to answer the question, what do we do about it then? Yeah. Um, on the, uh, the curly Q bulb, I went out uh, to, uh, to the factory in uh, Virginia where they used to make the regular light bulbs. And I kind of had to sneak onto the GE property to like talk to the guys on the day that it was announced that they were all getting laid off. They were getting laid off because you know, their light bulbs had been regulated out of existence. And I went up and I asked him about it. And this one guy, Dwayne Madigan, jumped up and he said, government did us in. And that was just a brilliant moment for a columnist because I just wrote down his one quote and the rest of my column was written. Um, and I thought like that a, a good fitting symbolic end would have been to you know, smash this bulb on the podium, but that of course would have released mercury ga gas and you guys would all be poisoned. So I have to gently bring this back to the Holiday Inn um, where I borrowed it from. Um, but uh, corporations executives have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholder. And so if you go ahead and you say, I'm going to forego profits for my own scruples, is that legally problematic? There are cases about this. In fact, one of them involved Ford Motor. Um, any recent law school alumni here might remember uh, this case. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you've seen businesses do this. BB&T is a bank. And um, after the Kilo v. New London decision about eminent domain, they said, we will not finance any development deals that are benefiting from eminent domain takings because we think that's wrong. And uh, the president of the bank at the time, John Allison, uh, later or currently is now the outgoing president of the Cato Institute. And he, he was the one who put that decision in place. He said, we didn't know how this would affect our business, but it turned out a ton of people open checking accounts because of it. So it ended up being good business, but not because people said, oh, a checking account is gonna be more stable at a bank that doesn't do it. It's because they wanted to vote with their dollars. So that's one thing. Businesses often take stances that they think are you know, morally good, whether it's because it reflects the executive's morality or they think it pursues profit. Why is Tim Cook you know, going after pizza owners in, in Indiana? <laughs> the head of Apple, maybe he thinks you know, his gay marriage stance is gonna win him business, or maybe it's just a deeply held personal belief. So part of it can be if you're a publicly traded corporation and you lay out your views very clearly ahead of time. We are going to pursue profit within the bounds of free and open competition, and that means we won't do this, um, that that's not ripping off uh, your shareholders. And, but I agree that it's a very, there's lots of gray area. And again, I referred to an article I wrote in Reason Magazine where there's lots of iffy things. What if they come to you, the county government comes to you and says, by the way, we're taking this land by eminent domain to give to a store, your Home Depot. We're either giving it to you or to Lowe's hardware. That's a, that's a very tough situation. So there's lots of gray, murky ground there. But I do believe that it's very clear that corporations are allowed to pursue something other than maximize profit, profit within certain contexts. Um, and that if it's just your own personal scruples, then maybe that's uh, problematic. But if it's a well-articulated vision of principles, that free and open competition are part of it, um, 
I think that's legit. And again, these businesses that are saying we're not going to do business in Indiana because we think their religious freedom law is anti-gay or something like that, are all of them going to get prosecuted? I mean, that would or, or sued by their shareholders. That would be an interesting question. I'd see how that would go. But I think that a corporation is allowed to have um, principles aside from just the pure pursuit of profit. But I agree that the, the, the case law on that is tricky. But here's the most important point. I think corporations have to have higher principles than just a simple pursuit of profit because otherwise free enterprise is just going to be completely eroded by the big guys. And what happens when that happens? Capitalism becomes the sort of Marxist stereotype of capitalism. Businesses sell you something and profit, not because you want it and you like the price, but because you have no other choice. That's exactly what's happened with the light bulbs. Um, so I think that uh, businesses absolutely have to do that. And executives, the more clearly they articulate, we're going to pursue profit. We're going to do it within the bounds of free and open competition. Um, the more they do that, the more it will, uh, it will move the whole debate in the right direction. How much research do the regulators do before they regulate? <laughs> so, um, and th th this actually gets at the heart of the lobbying issue. Part of the reason that regulators, op after a law passes, the agencies open it up for public comment is because they sort of know that they don't really know how they're going to affect industry. And in fact, they're better now than they used to be at going ahead and, and finding out the impact. Um, but one question they don't really ask in general is, will this crowd out new entrants? And the reason you don't ask that is because there's nobody to file that comment. There's nobody to lobby you on behalf of the business that doesn't exist yet. Um, and that's one of the biggest things. Free enterprise is all about the openness to possibility. But if there's either a couple small businesses, they don't have the ability to fly to Washington. Or some business that doesn't exist yet, well, they evidently don't have the ability to lobby. Um, and that's why things where you see victories in cases like Uber, where they're a startup business, but they're backed by millions and millions in venture capital startup fund, and they can have their voice heard. And this is the main way that corruption happens in Washington, frankly, is not bribery type stuff, but the lawmakers and the regulators will call in everybody or will listen to everybody who can get a meeting with them. But the small businesses or the businesses that are in the future don't, don't really get a voice. Well, I guess going off that point, I wanted to ask you if you think there are ever regulations that are good for future businesses. Maybe a recent example would be net neutrality uh, that's uh, recently come up. So net neutrality um, has the support of a lot of content providers, internet content providers, Google, those guys. Um, and it is opposed by the networks like AT&T and Verizon and um, and I tend to not really weigh in on it, except that I think it's probably amounts to freezing in place the existing business model, um, which is probably anti-innovation. I could imagine a network building sort of high-speed lanes, like the equivalent of bus lanes or, or you know, uh, light rail, but for things like Netflix or other streaming data, while others are slower, that sort of innovation gets uh, stultified. Um, the proper role of regulation is sort of basic uh, 
per, uh, where it's needed to prevent fraud ahead of time or where there's real information asymmetries, like you don't know what's actually going on in the kitchen of a restaurant. So we should probably prohibit them from, you know, having rats or, you know, sweating onto your food or whatever it is that they would do. Um, and in those cases, it can increase, you know, basic customer uh, faith in it. But a lot of times when they say, oh, well, we want better, uh, uh, better customer confidence, like this is what a lot of the guys said about Sarbanes-Oxley bill passed after Enron. It's like, you want investor confidence, that's your job as companies to build up investor confidence. So most regulations that are described as being pro-business, I think, end up being about businesses trying to offload um, what they want to do. But if there's basic sort of safety and soundness stuff, that's where I think uh, the, the regulations play, play the proper role. No. Well, I guess my question is, is in follow-up to that, is that the net neutrality laws, they were kind of pushing for the packet that comes from Google to get to you just as fast as the packet that comes from me as a small business yep. owner. Now, isn't, isn't that good? Because what if there's a new uh, search provider out there who doesn't have the ability to pay providers for that fast-speed lane, mm -hmm. that future business that doesn't exist yet? Yeah. So in my mind, it makes it that argument that net neutrality isn't a good thing a little bit tougher. Um, and so the uh, antitrust laws is a very interesting thing. And I have a very uh, mixed relationship with antitrust laws because generally I don't like big government. On the other hand, my dad's an antitrust lawyer. So my food for the first 18 years of my life was entirely brought to you by the Sherman Antitrust Act. Um, but that um, legal protections against monopolies in cases, especially like networks, because this is another thing where... I talk about free enterprise, but what if you start off with a government-created monopoly, as in telecom and that sort of thing? There you are going to want, if there's a government-created monopoly, you are going to want some rules on it. And so in those sort of situations, I could see if you're having the networks favoring their own content or the content of the bigger guys over it, um, that's a case where, uh, where some level could be... Uh, some level of regulation could be legitimate, but from what I've followed of, of net neutrality rules so far, uh, I'm unconvinced. But you're right, that it is a sort of place where conceivably you could see abuse of a government-granted monopoly. Is, are there any case studies where any companies, big companies, established companies, are going against the grain? Yeah. Um, so I told the story of BB&T opposing, uh, saying we wouldn't finance... Uh, uh, development deals that involve taking somebody else's property through eminent domain. That was a, a good story. Um, you've had restaurant lobbies in some cities who looked around and said, we think we are over-regulated, and so we'll support food trucks um, coming in together with the removal of the regulations on us that don't actually affect the safety and soundness of the food. Um, and I saw that in... Um, that wasn't in Chicago, but that was, it might have been Milwaukee. It was some Midwestern city where I was surprised um, to see that. You see, uh, you see other businesses that go ahead and do that that think we're going to win in a free and open competition. Exxon has supported the removal of all energy tax credits, even though dollar-wise, Exxon gets more money from energy tax credits than anybody else, but just because they say, 
what we're selling is oil and natural gas, and that's better than what anybody else is selling, so we think we win in free and open competition. And I think a lot of times the problem isn't the CEOs, it's the lobbyists. So it's the companies that say, we're not gonna necessarily listen to our lobbyists. The lobbyists want government and business to be more intertwined, and sometimes the CEOs go out there and they say, well, you know what, no, we wanna win. We wanna actually win. And the analogy uh, that my uh, AEI boss, Arthur Brooks, uses is, if, if you're the Red Sox manager and the Yankees are coming up for a, a series, do you figure out how to strike out their batters and hit their pitchers, or do you lay a strip of nails down on I-95 to run their, their team bus off the And the, that attitude, we'd rather win than just block the competition, that's something that's slightly different than the pure pursuit of profit. And you do see that, but more, the most you see it is actually in the privately owned corporations where there's not the danger of the fiduciary responsibility where somebody says, I didn't come here just to maximize profit. Sure, I wouldn't have done it if I couldn't have made lots of money out of here, but I came out here to win. I mean, this is one reason I, you know, I think the, what the, the Koch brothers are doing is, is deserving of praise. They're a privately owned corporation and sometimes they, they're opposing the Export-Import Bank right now even though they've profited off of it in the past. Um, and so where you see it the most is a, the corporations that are owned by individuals and families as opposed to millions of shareholders. Any other questions? Yes. You know, the uh, regulatory agencies, it seems to me, are, are become total captives. If you take the EPA, and I ask myself, what kind of people are working at the EPA? You know, uh, and then the answer is that once they get into place, nobody with a different opinion is ever going to get promoted. I mean, it's a lock, just like it is in the universities with liberal professors versus conservative professors. But the next thing is, once they have a lock on that agency, in which they have a lock, it seems like, on all the agencies, they never stop. You know, they have, it seems like a momentum uh, yeah. that just keeps going on its own. I mean, what are they, the hundreds of, or thousands of people there uh, what do they do once they got the air purity to what it was more pure than in the Garden of Eden? Where do they, what do, they do, go home? I yeah, think so. I know, you see it with the, the arsenic rules where uh, like nobody wants to drink arsenic, but like we have undetectable levels of arsenic in our water and they want to reduce it to zero because the, the water people are running out of things to do. Um, it's a problem, I mean, that's, that's one that I definitely don't have a good trade-off for because the idea of a civil service um, that's a response to just having total cronyism where the guy who comes in gets to appoint everybody. You should have experts and that sort of thing, but it is an argument against sort of expert rule. But another version of it is, is uh, industry capturing their regulators. And the greatest example of this is probably the Federal Reserve where they're supposed to be regulating the banks um, to make sure they're safe and secure. But then in the end, that ends up meaning bailing them out. And in the end, it means, well, how am I going to actually make some decent money? Probably by going to work for the bank that I'm regulating, so I'll make sure I go along with them. Increase my influence over them with a little bit of regulation, but never sort of shiving them. So yeah, the, the federal bureaucracy is a problem, but the reason we have these career bureaucrats is because the alternative is what you see in you know a third world country where every government employee is uh, appointed by. I mean, this is the sort of downside of a lot of my writing and a lot of my talking is that I can tell you all about the problems, but the, my, my uh, recipe of solutions 
is fairly limited. It basically boils down to this. The way you get rid of corruption in the high places is you get rid of the high places. You limit government's role in the economy, and that takes away the ability of this sort of corporatism and cronyism to happen. And if you limited government's ability in the economy, I think you would see big businesses in more danger of being brought down by upstarts and smaller competitors. So how do we do that? <laughs> I mean, I, I will actually say a quick couple comments on reforms. I think the revolving door, so some people talk about campaign finance. Um, I'm not that big a fan of campaign finance restrictions. I like political speech. It's what I do for a living. I think speech and debate is great. Um, but the revolving door is a problem. The lawmakers, their top staffers, the regulators, the cabinet secretaries becoming lobbyists. What does it do? It, first, it gives an advantage to the people who are big enough to hire them. The Philip Morris hiring the FDA commissioner. But more importantly, it provides a bad incentive for the, these people while they're in office. And I see this every day in Washington. And if you, if you were to say, let's make a health care law that maximizes my worth as a former staffer on the Senate Health Committee, what would you do? You would increase subsidies. You would increase regulations. You would create mandates. You would create the rules as ill-defined as possible so that there'd be years of, of regulation going on. Obamacare was basically could be seen as a bill that maximized the value of all the congressmen who voted for it and the staffers who wrote it. And the same with the Democrats' uh, Wall Street, Bill Dodd-Frank. It was vague, open-ended, increased regulation, but didn't crowd industry out and led to more subsidies and protection. And so if you slowed the revolving door, it made it harder for policymakers and lawmakers to become lobbyists. I think that would address some of the problem. One more question. I think this is the question that everybody really wanted to ask but didn't. You said you have five children. <laughs> yeah. Either you started with your wife having children when you were 17, <laughs> or you had twins, triplets, quintuplets, or how did that, how does that go? Um, the, the way that babies are made is very complex, and I don't know that right now. But later on. Five private. single yeah. births. Five <laughs> single births. Yeah. That's the question of the night. He looks way too young to have five I thought kids. the beard and the balding would help. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, please join me in thanking Tim Carney. Thank you. Thank you.